Well, Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come together as a community of faith. Uh, we thank you that we can sing together, worship together, fellowship together, and now learn together from your word. And I pray that as we do so, make a deep impact in all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, for my sermon, I did some pre-COVID stats because COVID's kind of messed up with, you know, a lot of different factors in life, including we don't quite know what family life looks like anymore, okay? So pre-COVID in a 2020 study, it was estimated that parents spend an average of five hours a week in face-to-face -face time with their kids. So in one week, your average parent spends five hours face-to-face -face talking, spending time with their children. So you wonder, what do the kids look at, interact with the rest of the time? And what they found was in a 2019 study before the age of the pandemic, your average American child or teen spends seven hours a day on screens. Seven hours a day on screens. Now, a lot of you teenagers out there are wondering, is my smartphone about to be confiscated? Well, it might, it might. And that's seven hours a day, get this, doesn't include any school-related work. So you take out school-related work, seven hours a day spent on screens. And, and so the question you have to ask is, who is functionally teaching your children? Who is shaping their worldview, instilling their values? And another question is, what are they teaching your children? What messages? I mean, we all know that, that children are the future, right? And that's often why children uh, are at the center of the culture wars. We need to do this for the children. And those who don't have children desperately want to influence your children and shape your children to implement their worldview and bring in their version of utopia. You know, that's why the public schools are such a battlefield in the culture wars. It's why when you look at Sesame Street, they'll introduce a family with two dads. It's why so many songs show uh, and shows and movies portray parents as kind of these happy and competent idiots, but it's the children who are really the wise ones. And part of that is they want to pry your influence away from your children. Further, we know from Scripture that children are born sinners. You never have to teach your children how to sin. They don't wake up wanting to share. Right? Children can actually be pretty violent with each other. If you ever go to the toddler room, right? Mine, push people down. I mean, we'd never tolerate that, but they do somehow, right? It's the way of the, way of the world in the hearts of the kids. And so you have a world that wants to instruct your children, and inside your child's heart is really a corruption that wants to obey what the world is telling them to do. And so it's as if the odds are stacked against us, right? And yet, in the Bible, we see a ray of hope. Timothy was raised in a mixed Christian home. He had a non-Christian father he was raised in a very hostile world, and, and, and yet 
there was a work of God that was done in him. We see the results of it in Philippians 2, 20 through 22. Paul says this of Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Now, wouldn't you love to have someone like Paul say that about one of your children? And so, what happened to Timothy? Was he just prayed for and then the Lord magically worked? Or, or was there something more that took place? Well, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And really, this is in the you know, after some depressing verses about the state of the world. They're going from bad to worse, and now they're trying to persecute those who stand for righteousness. And, and he, makes a, he makes a pivot here. He pivots to Timothy. But you, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, clearly, Paul had a role in Timothy's development. But notice how Paul says that he's merely building on the foundation of what he has learned from childhood. He was raised in a mixed family. Lois and Eunice were his grandmother and mother. And something happened to him because he was taught well. Now, what's interesting about this whole concept is not only was he taught well, but they were good teachers because of what they taught. In the very next passage, look at 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, which we'll talk about next week. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I remember when I was in California, I was walking to the hospital with a Bible in my hand to visit somebody, and I heard this man just yell out, that's a powerful book you got there. And it always just struck me. It was like, you know what? It kind of is. Because this contains a message that can transform any human heart. And if you raise your kids, you love your kids, I mean, you want them, I assume if you're here, right? We're all in church here, I'm preaching to the choir. You want your children to embrace the scriptures. And the way to do that is to teach your children well. And, and so we're going to look at a success story here. We're going to see how in spite of the odds against him, Timothy's mother and grandmother managed to teach their child well. And some of these are going to help you to teach your children well. And really, you can be a terrible teacher, but as long as you're teaching the right thing, the Bible can compensate for a lot of your errors. So how do you teach your children well? Well, you teach your children to be countercultural. You teach your children yourself. You teach your children early. And you teach your children the scriptures. Now, I'm going to acknowledge something here. Most of you in this audience don't have children. Some of you are children, which is why you don't have children. 
But perhaps someday you will have children, so take careful notes. 20 years from now might come in handy. Some of you uh, are empty nesting, or perhaps you're never able to have children, or you're not in a certain context of life where you do that, but the church is really a, a family of families, right? When you look around, those children are your future and the future of the church, agreed? Did you know how many children we have in this church? High school and down? 140. And, yes, that's right, praise the Lord, right? And in, we have 10 babies on the way. So by April, there's going to be 150 kids, right? All hands on deck, right? And we love them, right? We want this to be a place where children are loved and nurtured. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But really, a lot of this is just a vision for parents who are on the front line on how to teach your children well. So we're going to start with teach your children to be countercultural. Look at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So Paul is pivoting and he says, but as for you, you, Timothy, are to be different from what we just read about. 2 Timothy 3.13, right? While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Timothy is to be a striking contrast from that. Remember how we started off this chapter? 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very low assessment of humanity in verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the default position of mankind, including, did you notice, disobedient to parents? So when you are teaching your children well, you want to teach them to be different from that. You want to teach them to be distinct. The biblical term might be holy. And to be holy in this world means that you are going to be countercultural. And really how you raise them can bring them to that point, and I'll explain. Uh, one of the, I think, one of the most fascinating passages about parenting in Scripture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in the context, Paul is advocating that if you are married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is fine living with you, don't leave. Stay there. And he gives a reason why in 7.14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, clearly holiness is not talking about belief, right? They are, an unbeliever made holy, they're not a believer, but they're made holy in a different sense. Just like your kids can be made holy in a different sense. And I'll give you an example, kind of from my own life. Uh, when my kids were born, my parents had a personality transformation. I did not recognize them because they were not the same parents I grew up with. We had a grandchild-centered family. And even though they weren't believers at the time, I think God's grace did a work on them later on, but grandma, we ought to pray before a meal. Oh, absolutely, we're praying, right? And my parents' language was very clean. They were sanctified, right? 
And so when you have a, a, a Christian in the home, in a very real sense, it changes some of the behavior to become less like the world and more like what the Bible calls you to, short of salvation, mind you. But if you teach your kids to be respectful, they're countercultural. Agreed? Teaching your children to be submissive to authority makes them countercultural. Teaching your children uh, to be kind makes them countercultural. And, and there is a, a certain gift that you give your children when you raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. For instance, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. If you ever read the book of Proverbs, that's a letter from his father to his sons telling them, embrace this. Work hard, practice self-control, don't give full vent to your anger. If you've ever had somebody work for you and you have a kid who's self-controlled, shows up on time, works with a happy heart, does what he's told, you're like, may your tribe increase. That is countercultural. You want your kids to be different. That's good. Now, we live in a, in a world where they will say that certain schooling choices, uh, the problem with certain schooling choices is that your kids aren't socialized. Now, I understand that kids need to learn how to share and not throw a tantrum when you don't get your own way and don't hit when somebody takes your toys, right? There is a sense where you need to teach them the value of certain social cues, right? Love is not rude. But socialization is not teaching your kids to dress like a Kardashian or how to make a TikTok video or to be conversant in pop culture. I was talking to uh, Nate Phipps a couple of weeks ago. We always have these deep, profound conversations as we're procrastinating on sermon prep. Those are always the best conversations. But he said... He's always been struck by how sometimes the nerdy kids, the nerdy Christian kids are the ones who write out high school the best. Because they kissed socialization goodbye a long time ago. They're not thinking about parties. They're thinking about how to build a trebuchet. Look it up. <laughs> they're not worried about trying to date the right girl. They don't even notice. That ship has sailed a long time ago. They're okay being different. They've leaned into it. They've embraced it. They're not ruled by their peers. They've allowed themselves to just be their own person, and they're okay being weird. And frankly, if you want to blend into this world, I mean, Paul says pretty clearly previously in 2 Corinthians 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, if they crucify Jesus, how do you think they're going to accept you? So instead of teaching them to be preoccupied about the world and try to be accepted by the world and how to blend in with the world, you teach them how to be different from the world. Secondly, you teach your children yourself. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, right? A deep, entrenched conviction. Knowing from whom you learned it. 
So it's past tense, believed, and, and obviously Paul had a part of this, right? Paul had a part of this, but in the next verse he talks about from childhood. He's making a reference to something he talked about earlier in this book in 2 Corinthians 1.5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Lois and Eunice raised Timothy in the Jewish faith. While she'd be cooking dinner, she would, you know, sing various psalms. She would tuck her kids in at night, tuck Timothy in at night, and, and talk to him about the scriptures. Eunice would respond to Timothy's father's harsh words with a gentle and quiet spirit. Clearly, they were Old Testament believers steeped in the scriptures who obeyed what we read in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. Moses' command to Israel before they entered the promised land, a command that he, he told them with the expressed intent that they would pass on the faith from generation to generation. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Right? They were to teach their children. You are to teach your children. And you think, well, that's just Old Testament. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a command for the fathers, for the parents. And there's a reason for this. Parents are by far, by a country mile, the most powerful influence in a child's life. And do you know why? Because you've got a finger. Pretend this is a remote control and your kids are watching it. You can do something called push off. Screen is gone. It's like magic. You can confiscate their, their cell phone. You can take them out of school. I mean, you have tremendous influence over your parents' life, contrary to what the world tells you. They want to tell you that you got to leave it to the experts. What do you know? But you can teach your children. And frankly, you're always teaching your children. Did you know that? Coming to church on Sunday morning is teaching your children that on Sunday morning we come to church. Demeaning your wife in front of your children teaches your sons to look lowly on women. Treating your husband and using it the same tone that you use with your children at your husband teaches them not to respect their husband. But loving each other, forgiving each other, showing that dynamic between you two teaches them about reconciliation and forgiveness, right? We're always teaching our children, and so you want to teach them well. You teach them that Christianity is not just confined to Sunday morning. It's part of the, the milieu of how we live. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this later on. But for now, just know this. You yourself are called to teach your children. If you don't teach them, who will? 
If you don't teach them, who will? And if you don't teach them the Bible, who's going to teach them the Bible? Other people can teach them how to read. Other people can teach them how to throw the baseball. Other people might be able to teach them how certain outfits don't go together. All of those are important lessons. But you are the best equipped and the most influential person who can teach your children. So when does this start? You start early. Teach your children early. Third point, verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now Jewish tradition teaches you and you taught everyone that you began teaching the scriptures during their fourth year. So when they're three, that's the time when you would start teaching them the word. Going back to that command in Deuteronomy 6, 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now teach diligently, it uh, comes from a word where that means to kind of chisel, right? If you were to etch a, a stone, a message on a stone, you would bang it with a chisel over and over and over again and then kind of move your way down. And so it's just repeated blows to the chisel to etch something into their heart. And so what Moses is telling them is that you chisel the words into their hearts by repetition. And in an illiterate culture, do you know what that looked like? They, they would memorize the word. Simeon, we're in line right now. Why don't you give me the Ten Commandments? Judah, before we go to sleep, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Ruth, can you tell us what happened the night of the Passover? See, they were etching it into their hearts by repeated blows, and they did it when? Verse 7, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. No time is the wrong time to talk about the scriptures. It was just part of the vocabulary of the family. They got an early start, and they kept on going. And part of that is to train your kids in the scriptures, but part of that is to train the parents to be regular in talking about the word. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. Number one, when they are young, that's when their brains are like sponges. You are forming their worldview. It's amazing how everything that you say and the stories that they know just form how they see the world. I mean, we used to try to reenact Bible stories, and one of the best was Naaman. Right, you know about Naaman, the royal official who had leprosy. He dunked himself in the Jordan River, and then he was washed clean. Well, when you give your kids a bubble bath, that's a great time to reenact that story, right? Many cleansings took place in our bathtub. My, my kids uh, used to play crucifixion. They found these little burrs in the backyard that were kind of sharp and pointy, and so they, you know, I just see them like all sprawled out on the ground, each having like their nails piercing their hands, I guess, and it was weird, I have to admit it. But it kind of shows you those were the stories they were familiar with, right? 
And it's just deep into their soul. And that's why Adventure Club is just such a great ministry because they are getting the word pounded into their hearts. Further, when they are young, I mean, they kind of worship you. I remember when I came home, you know, before my kids were 10, it was like the Beatles showing up at JFK every time. You know, they just kind of hyperventilate when I showed up. And I said, kids, there's plenty of lover to go around. Daddy's gotcha. <laughs> now when I come home, their noses are in the book, and they're just, they notice me like, who's that mysterious shadow? Oh, it's dad. And then they go back. <laughs> Can't get those days back. But you know what? They're, they are impressionable. Their brains are like sponges. You start early. Now, some people will object to say, well, you're just brainwashing your children. You're just trying to indoctrinate them. And I'm just thinking to myself, you're just saying that because you want to brainwash them. Get your own children and brainwash them. I'm going to brainwash mine because the Lord commands me to. <laughs> I don't say that out loud, but I just smile judgmentally at them. But really, who else is going to teach your children? And you start young. And then most importantly, when you teach them, what do you teach them? You teach them the Bible. And how from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he gives one of the great texts of all Scripture, which I'm excited about next week. Come back for more. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, Paul had this esteem for Scripture, not just the Old Testament. Paul had some recognition that the New Testament was being written as well. And, and he loved it because it is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures make you wise for salvation. I mean, if you ever teach your kids that, that math concept, right, and they're just kind of banging their head, I'm not getting it, I'm not getting it, I'm not getting it, and then all of a sudden, you guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've experienced this. Oh, okay, I see it now, and now I can solve all these other problems too. They've just been made wise to math. Scriptures make you wise to salvation. And, and there's a real interesting passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where, where Paul is describing the tragedy of the Jews who are getting the Scripture put into them, but they're not made wise. In 14 and 15, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And Paul knows this well, right? He was steeped in the scriptures. But the veil was over his heart. He wasn't made wise to salvation. But, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. All of a sudden, he got it. He saw it. You see, even when they're not believing, it still is a good thing to have the scriptures given to them, right? You don't wait for your child to magically understand math, then teach them the concept. You teach them the concept, then you teach them math. 
And so when you look at these, these kids, many of them have these truths of Scripture given to them, and they are like unlit bonfires. One log here, another log, another log, another log, another log, another log, and then when they turn from their sins and they get it, all of that just fuels intense sanctification. Look how fast Paul grew, right? You might have known others who they just get it later on and they are just growing because they already have so much of that truth etched into their hearts. Now, some might object and just say, well, when you teach kids scripture, aren't you just, and they're not saved, aren't you just making them little Pharisees? Aren't you just making them Pharisees? I got four responses. Number one, so should we teach them to not act like Christians? Johnny, you're not a Christian yet, so I expect you to lie. Susie, be selfish so that we all, we all know that you're just faking it because you have an unbelieving heart, so just go ahead and be selfish. Secondly, we need to teach them that the scriptures are good. They're wonderful. Remember the Proverbs, how the Proverbs help you flourish in life? That when you do things like forgive another person, that's healing to relationships? The scriptures are good. They're not burdensome. You want to present them in a positive way that God's given you scriptures for your good. And thirdly, in teaching them the scriptures, what you're also doing is you are teaching them that they can never measure up. Paul would not know what sin was were it not for the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. But when he understood the depth of his sinful heart, he knew he needed total transformation. And fourth, the problem with the Pharisees is they thought they were already saved. They thought that God would just rubber stamp their salvation. But if you teach the continual need for the gospel, and you teach them that the God who's given you these good commandments wants to bless you, his disposition is not for you to perish, but for you to come to faith in him. If you turn from your sin and follow him, he'll give you a new heart and a new life so that you'll be able to drink the fullness of what he's called you to do. That is a good thing, but they cannot learn that apart from the scriptures. The scriptures are good. They are powerful. And you can be one of the worst teachers. You can have a stuttering problem. You might be confused as you're teaching, but if you're teaching the Bible, at least you're going in the right direction because the Bible is a powerful book. So the key to teaching your children well is to teach them Scripture. You teach them Scripture. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a really interesting article that led me to a string of articles uh, about research done by a, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith. Christian Smith is one of the most famous uh, sociologists out there, and he deals specifically with the religious lives of young people. And he did a study where he looked at Muslim families, Hindu families, Jewish families, mainline Protestant families, Catholic families, evangelical families, and he wanted to find out which parents most successfully transferred their, not only religion, but their level of religiosity, right, devotion to their religion, to their children. 
And he made four observations. Four observations. Number one, he said, the parents who successfully transfer their religiosity live out their faith. They, they found out that parent, that kids never rise above, or rarely, rarely, there's exceptions, obviously, I would count myself as one, um, rarely rise above the religiosity of their parents. When the parents live a consistent, devoted life, that is one of the things that help the kids grow. Secondly, it's a parenting style. They are, they are involved, they are warm, and they're authoritative. There's no child-centered parenting here. They have high expectations for their kids. They expect their kids to, to comply, but they're very warm and loving and involved at the same time. Thirdly, they routinely talk to the children, especially the teenagers, about their religion. It's not something that's confined to just Sunday morning. They don't think, well, I send them to Christian school, I send them to the youth group, they got involved in these activities, I'm good. They personally will talk to their children about the scriptures. And fourth, they're involved in a very warm religious community a very warm religious community. And this is really interesting too. Uh, what they found is that the kids didn't feel like they were taken to church by their parents. They eventually made the switch where the kids felt like this church was their church. They took some ownership of it. And that was often reinforced by adults that are not related to the family taking an active interest in their lives is reinforced by the fact that they had other peers that they looked forward to seeing. They took ownership. They, they saw the church as their church. And, and what these parents would do, they would, channel, they would channel their kids towards different relationships and people and activities where they saw the church as a way of reinforcing what they're teaching at home. I mean, that's... And according to the sociologist... This is a, there's a high correlation between parents who do all these things and those who maintain the same level of religiosity. Now, I understand that's sociology, that's observation, but you look at live out the faith, the parenting style, talking to your children about religion, involvement in a warm religious community, and it's really parodying what the Bible has taught for, for millennia. The Bible teaches that you need to live out your faith. That faith is not a Sunday-only activity. It's your whole life. The Bible teaches that when it comes to parents, there's God, there's mom and dad, and then there's a child. And I think I was talking to a, a sister earlier today, and she was talking about how her great-grandkids have already memorized two verses, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what the second one was? Children obey your parents, which happened to be one of my favorite verses. But there's always a sense where the children submit to the parents. It's authoritative parenting, but there's also fathers don't exasperate your children where it is to be a loving relationship as well. We also know from, from Scripture that, that God sees the church as a family of families. That when you look around at all these kids, I mean, those are like your nieces and nephews and, and grandkids. 
right? When you belong to the body of Christ, your family just got really big, right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We have that interconnected relationship where we look out and take care of each other and love each other. But then he said that, and this is what the sociologist said. He said he cannot emphasize it enough. The most important factor in passing on your religion to your kids is the parents talking about it at home. And he's made it very clear that parents, even parents of teenagers, are by far the most influential people in a teenager's life. Extraordinarily influential. And, and there's some, some reasons for it. Number one, you've earned some credibility with your kids, even if they don't acknowledge it. When they're helpless, when the only way they had to communicate what they want were through loud wails and screams, you fed them, you changed them, you clothed them, you still nurture them all the way through. They know instinctively, whether they admit it or not, that they rely on you, and in many cases that you guys have been faithful parents. Secondly, none of you live at church. You might feel like you live at church, but let's just be honest. You don't live at church. You live at home. And so what everybody has to learn how to do, right, is you have to learn to take what I just taught you here or what you taught in Sunday school or what you learned in Bible study, right? You, you get the information here and then you go home and you figure out how do I live it out? How do I translate this lesson into reality? And that's what parents help kids to do. And it, it's not just being the example, but it's talking about it. It's linking what you do with the words that you say and the lessons that you've been taught. Teaching your children at home, and I cannot emphasize this enough, is one of the most important things you can do for your children. So how, how do you do it? Well, I'm going to go to the book of Dave here. Um, these are some things that I have found to be helpful. You might have some other ideas. There's some other great parents here who might have different takes on what to do. I'm just going to give you some starting points of things that we have found helpful to do this. Number one, have regular family devotions. Have regular family devotions. In our resource center, we actually have a bunch of children's Bibles, family devotions. Amy Balding was great, kind of set the whole thing up because she knew I was preaching this. But there is something to just every night, you know, if they're young, just read a few Bible stories. It doesn't have to be fancy. Maybe have them act it out. Pray with them, maybe sing a few songs. But what that does is even when they're three, they're not grasping the Trinity, but you are training yourself to, every day I'm going to talk to them about the Lord. Now then sometimes as it gets a little bit older, we found that we had to move that to, to the dinner table. We'll find a, a devotional book. Maybe you can go through the Proverbs. Um, you know, we're deliberating on what we're going to read through next, but we, sometimes it's just a few pages, right? Five, ten minutes of reading out loud. What do you think? And there's your devotion. But you are, you want your kids and your family culture to be such that it's okay to talk about spiritual things. You guys have been around people who are just kind of fundamentally, if they're fundamentally awkward talking about the Lord and the Bible, and that's not really something your family is really comfortable with, it has to change. If they can't talk about the Bible 
and the Lord and the safety and the confines of your own house, where are they going to talk about it? Secondly, another way to do is just ask follow-up questions. What did you uh, think of the sermon? What did you What did you learn? Man, Pastor Dave hit another home run. What do you think? No, just kidding. <laughs> but you know, say so you, you you ask questions. What did you think? What stuck out? What stood out to you? This is what stood out to me. These are some things I'm going to be working on. What about you guys? What do you guys learn at youth group? Tell me about Adventure Club. What What happened there? Just take an active interest. Just ask them questions. Share what you learned. Uh, thirdly, um, and this helps when they get older, is maybe look at scheduling a time, an intentional time, to, uh, with each one of your children. Like, and I kind of divide it, boys and girls, and, and this is how I came upon this one. I, I realized that I often talk to my kids about the scriptures and about the gospel as I was about to discipline them. Dad's bringing up the scriptures again. Watch out. And I thought, you know what? That may not be the most winsome, effective way to impart the scriptures. <laughs> it's kind of reactive, not proactive. And, and so what I've done is, <clears throat> you know, we have a Bible time together. And it kind of started out where I take them out to McDonald's and you can have anything you want from the discount menu. <laughs> Don't get crazy on me. But, you know, they'd look forward to going to that because they get sugar and caffeine, right? Then I'd teach them the Bible, then release them to their mother. It was great. But it was a, um, <laughs> but it was a time where, and one of the rules that I had was, you have amnesty, right? Anything you confess to me here, I mean, I'll talk to you about it, I'll address it, but you won't have, like, punishment. Your phone won't be confiscated, but you need to admit it on your own here, right? And, and that was just kind of a way of trying to get them to share information, let me know about their struggles, and then talk about um, just different issues that are going on in their life, just so that we, we can actually have a spiritual conversation and kind of count on that once a week. Okay, so that was something that was helpful when they were older. Um, and number four, get them involved in children's and youth ministries. They are a great resource. I mean, there are times when I'll talk to a youth staff and just say, you know what, I'm I'm trying to get through and on this issue. Can you help me out here? And they will, and they'll reinforce it and have conversations that, that I can't have. But the thing is that the youth ministry and the children's ministry is not a replacement for parenting. They supplement. They help you. And I can tell you that all of the people who are in children's ministry and youth staff understand that, and they embrace that, and they want to help your children grow. So by all means, utilize them. But when you look at just the future right, of our, our church, I mean, having, we'll say by year's end, or by the end of the school year, 150 little souls in this building on a Sunday morning. I mean, that is an awesome opportunity. And all of us can play a part, even if you don't have children. Get to know the kids. It means more to them than you know. I love it that certain of the older men will talk about sports with my kids. You know, it's just they're taking an interest in their life. They take an interest in my daughter's lives. And so by you doing that, what you're doing is you are letting it be known that you love them and you want them to be a part of this community. And they begin to identify that these are my people and this is where I'm really loved.
you know, for those of you who are maybe on the fringe, deep involvement in church and being connected with that community is super important. But we have just a fantastic opportunity. I mean, we have a world that is coming after your children. They want to brainwash them, and they accuse you of doing, doing what they want to do. You have kids who, short of the grace of God, want to believe them. But God's designed the family structure so that you have this unique opportunity to impart the truth of the gospel in powerful ways to your children. We also have, we may not control social media, we may not control all these tech companies and all that, but we have the most powerful book in the universe and a gospel that can change hearts and lives that's more powerful than any Google algorithm. And so we've got the opportunity, we've got the resources, but all of us need to encourage those who can, right, to teach your children well. And when you teach the Bible, right, you're always going to teach them well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the gift of children and, and how precious they are to this body. I thank you that you have blessed us with so many. And I know that they are the future of the church, and I pray that they will learn to love you. And sometimes when people learn how to love the bride of Christ, the love of the bridegroom is not too far away. I pray that you will use this to help many of the parents who are kind of weary with the burdens of life to just double down and really invest in the spiritual lives of their children and that it'll bear much fruit. We know that all of this can't be done by our own work, but ultimately your spirit must energize the effort that we can water, we can sow, we can cultivate, but ultimately it's only you who can cause the growth. And we pray that you'll do so. In Christ's name, amen.